When I worked in a, a church in York for a time, uh, we had what we called a little sister church. And uh, it was only a few, t- a few years later, um, having worked at the church for a while, that I met a family who went to that church. And uh, it was interesting. We, we felt from our side that we'd, we'd launched a church. This was way before my time. And we prayerfully sort of sent them out. But that clearly wasn't the case when I met this family. What had happened is that the church had actually split from the church that I worked in. Some families had disagreed over leadership matters. And in the end, a number had very painfully chosen to leave and establish a new church. With that in mind, let me just give you a a slightly frightening couple of statistics that I found out this week. Of the Presbyterian churches in this country, there are 15 denominations. That's 15 splits that have essentially occurred over the last few hundred years. Of Baptists, there are over 12, some would argue nearly 20 A number of splits have occurred there, equally so for all the other denominations you can possibly think of. The point being, division is a major problem within the church worldwide. It's very sad to see this week, as many of you I'm sure have followed, uh, one of the uh, pastors of the biggest, one of the biggest churches in the whole of America, Mars Hill Church, has in a sense been forced to leave, has handed in his resignation probably ought to have left earlier, but it's another example of division within the church. One commentator I was reading this week uh, pointed back to 120 years ago of a Welsh chapel in the little uh, towns in the south there, and uh, division had come so bad within the church that on one Sunday, actually two men got into the pulpit. (laughs) There were two groups, two factions within the church, and they both said, right, we want our guy up there. So they started preaching on kind of both sides of the pulpit at their own groups, vying for the attention. In the end, the whole church was in argument, and the police were called, and the church was dismissed. Later on that week, apparently, they had a lovely phrase for it. They, they called a, a let's be friends meeting, which again, just totally went into disaster, and the police were called again. Well, it is sad, but we know it's not uncommon. I remember sitting on a church committee as a, as a youth, actually. I was there for about two years, kind of a representative for the youth. And uh, there we were. Um, I hardly said a word for those few years. But I remember very vividly one item that came up on the agenda every two months, again and again and again. And it took a long time for people to talk about, and there was a lot of heat in it. And the agenda item was something like this. It was about the trees in the bottom of the graveyard. For three years, I endured that. You see, the dangers of division from within the church are huge. In fact, if you turn to the New Testament, you'll see that every letter that Paul wrote uh, exists because there are problems possible divisions within all of the churches that he writes to. Even this letter that's written to the church in a place called Philippi, a church which is considered a model church, even this has warnings against division. And that's what we see in our passage in the beginning, first four verses in chapter 2 today. Now you'll remember if you were here last week, there was a very clear instruction from Paul, chapter 1 verse 27, have a look at it if you want to. And here, he'd given an instruction to the church. He says, whatever happens, consider your, uh, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And that instruction was given so that the church might stand firm because people were opposing them and the gospel that they had stood firm on and were proclaiming. But now Paul is turning and saying, actually, to within the church, he's saying, live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, take on pressures that are outside, but also you must keep an eye on within too. They must be united in their hearts and their minds so they remain together and they don't become factional, they don't become divided. But how are they to do that? Have a look down at verse 3 of our passage today. Uh, I guess it's a good summary. They're to humbly consider others better than themselves. Let's, let's go through that whole first section there, first four verses if we can to begin with. Verse 1, it's not helpfully translated here, but it begins with the word therefore. And that gives us a good clue to the link of chapter 1 verse 27 to this following section. That is, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to do what it says in these verses. And it's a passionate appeal from Paul for unity and mutual care within the church. Now again, in the English it's not that clear, but in, in the Greek it's one long sentence, verse 1 to 4. Paul is unashamedly appealing to their lives, but also their experience as Christians within the church. Verse 1 is an emotional appeal, has four kind of elements to it. Have a look at it. Uh, it's a remembrance of what has happened to each of the church members as they have come to Christ. Look at them together. That's verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that's first. If any comfort from his love, second. If any fellowship with the, uh, the Spirit, third. And if any tenderness and compassion, four things he appeals to. Then, as a result, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose. And what Paul is essentially saying here is something like this. If being a Christian, you guys, I'm appealing to you, your experience, how you felt. If being a Christian has ever brought you any encouragement from others within the church. Secondly, if you've known any comforts, that kind of unconditional love from your brothers and sisters within the church in Philippi through times of pain. Yeah. Thirdly, if you've had any sense of partnership with your guys you know, in Philippi because you've got the Spirit of God in you. Fourthly, if you've known any tenderness and compassion from those around you within the church. See, what Paul is doing is he's appealing to their experience. The normal everyday part of being a Christian within the church. And Paul is saying, if you've known these things, love, comfort, encouragement, partnership, then essentially what he's saying is, you guys sat here today, you owe it to others. <laughs> essentially, we pray quite often. It's a prayer called the grace. It's a kind of very common prayer, uh, pray throughout the church. And it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love, which Paul is mentioning here. And then what does he say in the prayer? And the fellowship that is the partnering of the Holy Spirit, those with the Holy Spirit. What does it say? Be with us all corporately, forevermore, down the generations. You've got to pass it on. Amen. So be it. This ought to be the enduring, if you like, a reality of coming to Christ, being a Christian in the church. For example, yeah, let's say tenderness and compassion, that last one there. 
Tenderness and compassion ought to flow naturally out of those of us who have received infinite tenderness and compassion from the Lord Jesus Christ. By trusting in the gospel, which is what we looked at last week. And Paul is trying to initiate in them what they know to be true, what they have experienced themselves as being Christians and part of the church in Philippi. The encouragement in verse 2, look at that if you want, is that in doing this, the church will then be united in a couple of things. United in making Paul's joy complete. That's, his, that's his, the thing that he longs for most, if you like. But more importantly, they'll be like-minded, having the same love as those who have loved them. And the entire church is to reflect that same precious, Christ-honouring, self-denying stance in their lives. So let's summarise if we can. To, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to have the same mind, the same attitude he'll use later. To stand firm, last week, against those who oppose you and the gospel. But now Paul's plea to the Philippians is to, to be gospel-orientated, united as they serve Christ and serve one another for Christ. It's united with this very dynamic purpose. You see, if you're you're united, if we are united as a church around anything else, that is when division begins to come in. For example, many churches, and you know my involvement in music, many people will say, oh, well, church is all about about worship, isn't it? But the purpose of the church must be the gospel of which we're united around, that establishes and unifies and encourages the church, out of which flows worship. Rightly so. So, for example, our children's groups upstairs, they are to be united in the gospel. That that is their great purpose, that the gospel is proclaimed. As we reach out to the community, we we ought to do lots of wonderful things to help the the people around us, but our purpose is so the gospel might might be known. Our home groups, we meet, and I'm sure we have a great time, you know, and Joel cooks a dinner and someone makes a dessert, and it's all nice and it's all fun, but the purpose is that we understand the gospel, that we're united in that. Everything must be gospel-orientated. It's all the happiness that Paul seeks, is that the church is unified in the gospel, lived out, as we see in verse 1 to 4. As the gospel lived out, then his joy will be complete. But how will this be practically shown in the lives of the church? Well, verse 3, it's spelt out, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Now, you will know as you go around in your, in your job and work, selfish ambition, vain conceit, well, it's pretty rife, isn't it? You aren't going to get anywhere in this world, are you, with, uh, without it? And there's a half-truth in that in some ways. But what Paul is saying is that selfish ambition, vain conceit within the church, it's an abomination, he's saying. Give an example. Oscar Wilde, when coming back into this country once, he got to a customs officer and he said, have you got anything to declare? And he said, only my genius. (laughs) You see, humility, considering others better than yourself, 
Of course, it will hinder a career if you were to put that into your workplace. But remember, this is being written to the church about the church. And therefore, Paul concludes what he says in verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It is that mindset and purpose that is exemplified in the gospel as we see in a moment and as we marvel at Christ. But this is very difficult. I'll give you an example of that. A conductor of a symphony orchestra, I read this uh, this week, he was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play within the orchestra? And his answer was this, second violin. I, can't, I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find anyone who will play second violin with enthusiasm, there's the problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second violin well. But can we do this? How is it possible to therefore put others first? People put themselves first, don't they? That's the way of the world. And, uh, and they love others second. That's just, everyone around us lives like that. And it's what probably comes naturally to us too. Paul didn't hate himself, but he understood the gospel that Christ loved him first, gave himself for him. And therefore, he looks at verse 1 to 4 and he sees the gospel there and he says, that's the way to live it out. It's to put Christ first and everyone else first before myself. And the power comes from Christ himself and the gospel in him. And it's possible for all Christians, which is why in verse 5, Paul sets it up. He says, your attitude therefore should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Literally verse 5 says something like this, if I can uh, say to you, have this mind attitude among yourselves which is yours in Christ, with the power of Christ, the Spirit of Christ in you. It should be ours together as a church, as Christians, those saved by the gospel. See, Paul's concern here is actually for their common attitude, their common mind, and how it works out within their relationships within the church. So from now, so, so now from verse 6 through to 11, Paul spells out the attitude or mind of Christ, of which ours corporately and individually should be the same as that of Christ. It puts others first. But you will see as well as we go through it, it is also the gospel spelt out, the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's look at it together. I think it will blow our minds. Let's go for it. Look at Christ, we're there on the first point, Christ's self-humility. Let's read if we can, verse 5 through to 8, just to refresh our minds of that. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. There is not a greater example of humility anywhere. It begins outside of time, 
Jesus is described in Revelation verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 8, as this, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. You see, therefore, Jesus had an eternal determination to resolve to be humble for us. To humble himself for our benefit. So what we're going to learn, three things, I put them down in the little points there. I think about what are we going to learn about Christ's self-humility? Firstly, we see it in heaven in verse 6. Verse 7, we see it in his incarnation, in his coming to this earth. That is, he truly identified himself with us, not just in form, but also in heart. Verse 8, then we see Christ's self-humiliation in his death. Even death on a cross, it says. There's nothing lower literally became, as some would say, an obscenity for us. It would be known in, in the culture. And of course, it was all in his control. Determined in eternity, as we saw, no one else humbled him, not Pilate, not the Roman soldiers. He humbled himself. This is Christ's self-humiliation. And, and many would argue this is the theological sort of centre of the book, the jewel, if you like, right at the centre it's probably the first hymn of the early church. And it's a picture, I don't know if you spotted it, as you go through verse 6, 7, then 8, it essentially is going down, down, and down. Did you, did you spot that? Many consider this to be the greatest prose in the whole of the New Testament. One scholar described it as the, the soul's back cantata. Now, I'm not a classical uh, musician by any means, but apparently back cantata, they essentially go down, 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 up, 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 down, 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 down and then they repeat all over again. I guess our prayer ought to be that this week, as we listen to this cantata of the soul, as he described it, we need to be reminding ourselves again and again and again of what Christ has done for us, and marvel and rejoice. I want to ask you a little bit of a warning, if I can. Please note that though this will stimulate your minds, make sure it does not stay there. Resolve that it's not just, oh, I learned more today. No, it must be responded to as we see who Christ is, what he has done for us, and we try and live out chapter 1, verse 27, to live lives worthy of the gospel. So let's look at Christ's self-humility. Firstly, in heaven, verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp. Now, big picture, if you want. In the words of John Wong, one of our elders, he would say something like this, I'm going to blow your mind, dude. Or something like that. You know, be that kind of thing. Now, we see here that Christ existed in all eternity. He has always been coexistent with the Father and the Spirit. Therefore, he shares all the glory of God. That term, look at it, very nature there. And you'll see also in your footnote, just spot that there, it says, or in the form of, John Calvin, once a great reformer and theologian, once described it as essentially the, um, the majesty of God, the form of God, essentially saying, Jesus is awesome in every way, shape or form. This is why in the upper room Jesus prays in John 17 verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He's always existed with all the glory. 
Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What's the point there is Christ isn't just like a reflector of God's glory, he's the radiance, that is the one who radiates the glory of God himself in every way, like the Father that way. And just so we're clear, um, we can't declare the scale of uh, the Christ's glory. If you try, yes, as John Wong says, it it will blow your mind. But this is a reality that we need to try and put into our hearts, drive it into our hearts. Christ is everything. And yet, we read, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The new translation of the NIV, which we'll be moving to soon, helpfully puts it this way. It's not something he used for his own advantage. Rather, we see in verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This takes us to our second little point there. Christ's self-humility in his incarnation, that is, in him coming to this earth. He made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself. But that's not to say, we need to be very careful, a hundred years ago there was a very big uh, deal, big debate. It's not that he stopped being God in his attributes, in who he was. Rather, he made himself nothing. How? By taking on the very nature of a servant, it says. Or the form of a servant. Same kind of word being used there. So he was the form of God, verse 6. But takes on the form of a servant, verse 7. Or a slave. Fully God essentially. And fully man. But having been utterly glorious in heaven. Did he just humble himself and become kind of a grown earthly king? Moving into a massive temple. Ruling all the earth in that way? No. It says he was born in human likeness. He came as a little baby. Jesus did not become humble though, note that. He's humble in eternity. Always has been, always will. He's the beginning of humility and the greatest example of humility. I remember as a sermon, do you remember the first sermon I preached at Christ Church Ellsfield? Oh, shame on you. Don't remember it? No, okay. I preached uh, Mark 10, 40 to 45. And it's simply the story where the, the disciples are wrangling for power to sit at the right hand of Christ in glory. And Jesus responds to them. He says this, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the greatest example, isn't he, of humility. Verse 5, remind, remind yourselves, your attitude, our attitude together to avoid division should be that the same as Christ Jesus. But I guess we struggle as we look at there in Mark 10. We struggle as the disciples did, didn't we? Just a, a few days afterwards, Jesus had taken it, he had, after he'd rebuked his disciples in Mark 10, they found themselves in an upper room. And with no one present to wash their feet, as would have been customary, Jesus stood there, stripped his outer garment and his tunic, and placed a towel around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet. 
Now, history tells us that even the household servant could not be expected to do such a menial task. But now clothed only in a servant's towel, you can imagine the stunned silence of the disciples, can't you? As their master, the Lord of all eternity, stoops and washes their feet. The silence would have been absolutely, essentially deafening. They could hear every drop of water over their feet and their master toweling their feet dry. I guess it would be a reminder of their arrogance and Christ's wonderful humility. But if that weren't enough, our hearts ought to be ready to explode, I guess, as we see now in verse 8. Look at it, Christ's self-humiliation in his death. And being found in appearance as man, verse 8 reads, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. As a man fully human, he humbled himself. No one else did. He was utterly in control. The Danish philosopher can't even say his name, but he described Christ humbling himself in this way. It's quite extraordinary. He humbled himself. That's not that philosophical, is it? But then he said this. The infinite qualitative difference between Christ and every other man lies indeed in this. That in every humiliation which he suffers, it is absolutely necessary that he himself should assent and confirm that he is willing to submit to that humiliation. This is infinite superiority over suffering. But at the same time, also suffering infinitely more intense in kind. He's saying, he's saying there, as, as Christ is willing to suffer and humiliate himself on a cross, the suffering is born on him infinitely worse than any of us because of his qualitative character, if you like. In every verse that we read, Christ is utterly in control. He chooses, he decides, and he decides death for himself, for you, for me. It was in total obedience, and it led to an utterly obscene punishment as he was placed on a Roman cross. Roman, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5 said, In so doing, he became sin for us, bearing a punishment that we deserve for the times that we've turned our backs on God, ignored God. Such was the magnitude of the impending sin-bearing death that in the garden, just hours before, he sweat drops of blood. But he was obedient to his father, as we know, and walked to his death. It was self-humiliation for me and for you. And what a humiliation at this point. Humanity, I guess, had not created anything more lonesome, loathsome. In polite Roman society, in the Cafe Nero's and uh, you know, the, the coffee shops of Jerusalem at the time, they couldn't even say the word cross. And it wasn't until about a hundred or so more years later that even the early church could adopt the cross as the sign of being a Christian. 
So the humblest man that has ever lived, Christ, gives himself from heaven, humbling himself to take the form of a child and dies on a cross, bearing all my shame, bearing all my guilt. Calvin said this, dying this way, he was not only covered with shame in the sight of men, but also accursed in the sight of God. He took the punishment I deserve. And you. Why does Paul make so much of this kind of self-humiliation? Well, go back to verse 3. You'll see why. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You want the example? You've seen it. This is the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, but having this attitude, verse 5, is living a life that is worthy of the gospel. That's what we saw back in chapter 1. My question is, is this your attitude? And is this our attitude? Counting others more significant than ourselves is tough, isn't it? But it must be that way for the sake of the unity of the church. That's what Paul is calling us to. It's essential in each of our hearts, so watch your hearts now. The movement, I guess I pointed out, has been down, down, down. But imagine, if you like, a catapult, if you will, as you pull it down and down and down, you kind of ratchet it down, and then what happens at the end? <coughs> it explodes. Three movements down are followed by this utterly majestic exaltation and vindication. Christ's self-humility in verse 6 to 8 is followed by a super exaltation in verses 9 to 11. Let's look at it. You'll be relieved I'm not going to spend too much time on it because I'm looking forward to that next week. But look at verse 9 to 11 with me if you can. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here we see Christ's super exaltation. Jesus taught himself in Matthew 23, he said this, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What Jesus taught is essentially coming true for him. Christ goes down, down, and down in his humiliation through his incarnation and through his death. Now this once-for-all event, his resurrection, he explodes from the grave, and once again is glorious, radiant. Paul doesn't hold back, okay, in the way that he describes this. He uses a word that is never used anywhere in the whole of the New Testament. It's only here. Therefore, God, I know it says exalted here in our versions, but it essentially is super exalted, uber exalted, whatever you want to put. It's massive. And what Paul is saying here is that, is that Christ, though humiliated, is now catapulted into a league of his own. He's incomprehensible. He's, a, he's a, above all the rest. Not just by a little bit, infinitely above everyone else. He's super exalted through his resurrection and his ascension. And now he rules and he reigns forever. He's vindicated, he's glorified. He's in the place where he ought to be. And this is historical fact. We'll look at that more next week. 
And it's also the core of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ eternal, equal with God, humbled himself as a baby, lived humbly, serving, died a death, taking on himself a justice that I deserve. Down, down, down. But then he is super exalted, resurrected, ascended. And in that super exaltation offers each one of us new life with him and the forgiveness of sins, free from guilt and the burden of them. He offers that to us if we are humble. It's funny that, isn't it? The humble one offers to those who would be humble. We'll look at those three verses more as we begin next week, but note this as we close. My friends, this is the gospel that we trust, isn't it? This is the gospel life that we're to imitate. That is to have the same attitude as in verse 5, so that we can live lives worthy of the gospel. We can't earn forgiveness, can we? We can't merit ourselves to eternal life. But it's been offered to us by the humble one. It can only be received by those who are willing to humble themselves and accept this gift of grace. And there will be one or two here, maybe, who need to do that today. Who need to come before the super-exalted Christ and humble themselves before him and accept his work as he humiliated himself, going down, 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 before going up, exalted, risen, glorified. When we do that, we trust, when we trust the gospel, we will long to respond with lives together as a church, united by that gospel, living in response to the gospel. My friends, I guess as Christchurch Hillsville, that is the unity that we strive for and that is the unity we pray for. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gaze on the majesty of who Christ is, we are I hope and I pray, humbled, as he humbled himself. The one who was uh, equal with God, very, by his very nature, went down, down and down. And ended up on a cross, bearing the sin that, that not he committed, but that we did. And therefore, we long to respond to that wonderful going down and that then exaltation. We want to live with that same attitude, but trust that amazing historic work of the gospel. May we as a church be united in that. May we strive to pray again and again and again that we never stray from this gospel message. We ask that for your glory and for your church. Amen.
And we thank you so much uh, for showing us the glory of the Lord Jesus. And it's wonderfully appropriate 